Queer Relationships, an IM clinic podcast devoted to helping you, the LGBTQ community, create the love lives and relationships you crave. It's a matter of I, I chose unhealthy patterns to cope um, up until the point where I realized I, I can't do this anymore. And I, and I made a drastic change and that change drove me into deeper discomfort. But now I, I'm in a space of excitement and joy that I could have never imagined before. Hello, my name is Isaac Archuleta and I'm today's host and I just wanted to say happy pride. The pride theme we have for this year is I am resilient to remind us that we have power in a political world that would rather deny our rights, silence our voices, and erase us from the scene. In today's episode, I sit down with an inspirational force, and I mean that literally, because they are a force of empowerment, wisdom, and self-healing. We often talk about trauma, and that is a good thing. But what we often forget in the conversation around trauma, whether it be political, relational, religious, is that we are resilient. Trauma strips us from knowing our own resilience, and we can get stuck in feeling defined by or controlled by our trauma. Hence, I am resilient. So in today's episode, we hear one person's story of resilience, and it comes with a powerful force. I hope you enjoy. Let's take a listen. Well, I like to spend the month before Pride, like getting myself prepared for Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, the majority of that is the, the mental, emotional understanding of who I am and who I'm becoming and like the changes that I've made within the year. So I spend a lot of time reflecting on that. And then from that reflection, I, I find out like, how can I best embody who I am or who I know myself to be? So then I kind of create like intentional costumes and outfits and things. Um, and then I go out, I go out and I, I communicate with people and I show this element of myself that I think is the most authentic, truest version of me. It changes every single year, which is natural. Um, but for me, pride is about just being completely open and honest with who I am. And mm-hmm. In some ways, it's a performance. It's a performance for myself, and it's a way for others to feel like they can begin to express something that they haven't been able to express. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Sounds like you're very intentional. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to be, especially around like big celebrations and holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, I find them to be very energetically charged and. I want to utilize that energy to the best of my ability. So that's why I approach them very intentionally. As you may know, our theme for this pride is I am resilient. And we came up with that theme because several factors. I think that um, in our society right now, trauma is playing a very big role. People are talking about their trauma. They're understanding it. And I think that sometimes we forget that we can be traumatized and experience resilience. Um, Sometimes trauma becomes such a powerful force that it can consume us. And I don't think if we have this connection to our body, like we talked about before, um, that it can almost feel like trauma is our our new prison. And for some people, it can almost feel like trauma is their new identity. Yeah, I just have to say the theme is 
very important specific and specifically for this time. Um, so I'm happy to be able to kind of speak to that through my own life. Um, there's two things that, that come up. Um, as I was growing up, I had a, um, a, a speech disorder and the speech disorder caused me to have some learning difficulties that developed. And through that, I started to feel like the space of education isn't something that's for me. Um, it was really difficult. I had to get extra tutoring. I had to like really work two times as hard as other people um, to overcome some of the adversity that, that I was experiencing. Um, so that, that was one really big thing. And I mean, eventually I, I graduated from high school. I ended up um, going to a really great institution for, for undergrad and then for, for both of, of my grad programs, because now I'm, I'm in a doctoral program. Um, and so for me, the, the way I overcame that was the realization of who I want to be and what I need to do in order to become that person. And so I, I wanted to be in the face of other people who are facing difficulty and I, I, I want to inspire them and I want to tell them my story and, and I, I want to pull out their story and encourage them. And in order for me to do that, I can't just realize like, okay, here's my difficulty. I'm going to skirt away from it. I'll dance around it. I had to like actually overcome it and work through it. So I put in the extra hours of tireless work and, um, and failure in order to achieve that. Um, and so that's, that's one major um, adversity that, that I had. And I think another that's tied to that is the lack of representation. Um, as I was climbing up the, um, climbing up sounds a little hierarchical, but as, as I was going through my scholarly journey, I saw less and less people of color. Um, as I was going deeper into my spiritual practices and, and psychological work, I saw less queer folks and specifically queer folks of color. So I had very little representation, very little examples and mentors um, into these spaces that I was going into. So I often felt alone. And I'm like, why am I here? Am I doing something wrong? Because there's no one else around me that's doing what I'm doing. And that isolation, that loneliness is extremely debilitating. Um, it, it left me just constantly questioning myself and doubting everything that I do. And I had to find little moments of representation in, um, in movies and TV shows and in these few interactions with people that I met. And that's what really inspired me to keep going. And it kind of helped me see that I can trailblaze a new path so that the person, the people that are following after me feel like they can do something a little bit easier. I wonder if that, loneliness and isolation you mentioned, was that in some way shaming? It was, it was. Um, and I, I felt the shame because, so one of the things that I believe is when we're in isolation and when, when we're in the state of being by ourselves, there's, there's all these thoughts that kind of that swirl around. Some of the thoughts belong to us. A lot of the thoughts do not. You know, it's other people's superimposed expectations or um, what have you that, that they put on you. And when you're in isolation, those thoughts become louder and louder and louder. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, when these sort of thoughts come up, we have to recognize like, okay, this thought is mine. This doesn't belong to me. This came from this particular space. And I found that there was so much shame that was kind of coming up in me. Um, shame, uh, shame for me being um, 
the mixture of being a black person and a gay person. Shame for me being non-binary. Shame for me looking into the more esoteric realms of psychology, you know, focusing on spirituality and spirits, which is not talked about because indigenous cultures have been wiped out um, across the world. So there's so much shame because I, I let the voices of society speak to me a little bit too loudly. But once I differentiated those voices, I was able to silence them, recognize where they come from and why they're there, and then step over them with my own voice. Totally. Absolutely. How do you differentiate those voices? Like, what is your practice? What do you do? I find this very, very helpful for a lot of clients, but I'm curious as to how you do it. Oh, yeah. So step one is to be <laughs> silent. <laughs> Maybe it's two steps or three steps. So step one is to be silent with yourself. That means not spending time listening to music or watching TV shows or even talking to people, literally just being with yourself. So once you can get into that space, you can start to recognize all the different voices that, that, that are coming up. And then I guess the second step would be for you to become more sensitive to the, the body. And when you start to say certain things to yourself, say it aloud, how does your body react to that? And start to track like, okay, when I'm saying these certain things, I feel this, this, this sting in the right side of my body. Or when I'm saying these sort of things, like my ears start to get like warm or whatever. And so just start to notice it, not, not judge it and create associations yet, but just start to, to notice these different things. And then the final part is really just going into those, th th those phrases, those things that are coming up, those words or sentences, and then just asking yourself, like, what is the source of this? Is this, is the source of this thing, is it love or is it fear or mm. hatred? You know, cause I, I find those two emotions are on the, two ends of the, the binaries sure. and something is either related to love or fear and hatred. Um, and then when I ask that question, I get an interesting answer and I just use all of that data to kind of come to a conclusion as to, is this something that I've created or is this something that someone else has been put onto me? Um, and so that's kind of like a, a scientific, a non-scientific scientific process as to figuring out whether or not the thoughts are yours or someone else's. I love that. You always blow my mind every time. I love it. I just love the way that you're reminding all of us that the body has everything it needs to heal. And I think as we differentiate these voices and allowing us to not only hear them and speak them aloud, but to feel their effect at different or various places in our body, gives the body the ability to heal itself and repair itself and find its own sense of truth. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I'll, I'll just add to that very quickly that a lot of the times we allow our minds to dictate the way we operate in, in the world. Cause we live, we live in a society that's very mind oriented or like um, using that mental faculty. And the second you allow the body to start to orient yourself you start to see something different. You start to operate differently, you start to see things and feel things differently. Mm -hmm. And when there's all these thoughts that are circling around in the mind, it doesn't make sense for me to use the mind to make sense of, of what's going on. You know, you have to use something that's a little bit outside of that space in order to reflect or to look back. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I always return to the body because the body gives me information that I can then 
help to sort out the the mess, the chaos that might be going on in my mind. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's almost like spring cleaning, um, tidying up that old cloud, like just pulling out all of the trash, throwing away what needs to go away and then putting back, but in an organized way, what we can keep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just like uh, Marie Kondo in, in some ways. Like, <laughs> exactly. Like what, what, what brings you joy, what belongs and then getting rid of whatever needs to go to the dumpster. Exactly. If Marie Kondo helps us clean our homes, Sifu Love helps us clean our bodies. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> uh, I, I wish I had that title, but I'll, I don't deserve it. I'll just leave that there for you. <laughs> uh, so in my rational way, one of the things that I find really helpful is when someone is hearing a narrative, um, they don't love me or um, they betrayed me. It can almost feel like, what did I do to deserve that? Mm. And so a way of like challenging those thoughts, and I recommend this all the time, is to come up with an alternative narrative. Instead of saying, well, they left in a huff and maybe I did something wrong, the alternative narrative could say, in their maturity, they could have hit the pause button. They could have expressed their frustrations and we could have had a repairing conversation, but they didn't take that route. And understanding the alternative scenario or narrative really helps us at least cognitively walk away from shame. And I love mm -hmm. what you're saying here, because if we could find, I'm wondering, let me test this out on you. If we could find that alternative narrative and how that hits the body, that might come from a place of love and compassion and we might feel warmth somewhere else or mm -hmm. something like that. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Because when we start to create these alternate narratives there's something in these narratives that there's this underpinning of desire and you know the, these alternate narratives that you're creating are based off of a situation in which you wish you would have seen a, a life you wish you would have experienced a moment you wish would have come into fruition and so there's this little bud of desire within that and for me, desire is, is, is it's fiery. So it's, it, it is this warmth that overcomes the body. It's this like luscious fluidity that, that occurs. And so when you do start to speak about what it is that you desired in the past and what you desire in the future, it does have a specific effect on the body because it's sourcing from a different place. It's not sourcing from fear. Um, it's sourcing from, I, I would say, desire. So because of that, it does feel a little bit different in the body. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. As a kiddo, feeling some of these blockades as you went through academics and your own spiritual psychological journey, what did it feel like to approach those blockades? To sit in that loneliness, to feel the isolation, to experience the shame? How did it feel to kind of walk closer to those experiences, but know that you still had to move forward? The short answer is uncomfortable. <laughs> it was really, really uncomfortable. And, um, you know, I would say before I got, like, I would say advanced into like my, my meditation process, I found myself going toward um, coping mechanisms in order to, to deal with the, the difficulty. So um, like, 
a lot of my coping mechanisms center around needing validation from other people. And so I would do things in order to get people's validation, even though those things made me feel uncomfortable or bad about myself or something that I would regret. Um, I did it because I was operating in spaces where I felt alone. And if I got someone else's validation, then I'm like, okay, well, you know, this person still loves me or, or this person tells me that I'm beautiful or this person tells me that I'm smart. So I'm going to gravitate toward them, do whatever it is that they need in order for them to keep feeding me these compliments. Um, and hopefully this will help me continue down this particular path that, that, that I, I was going on. And so I found myself people pleasing a lot. Um, I found myself in ad addictive behavioral patterns just to continue to please the people that were around me. And, you know, it worked to an extent, but it destroyed me. Um, when I got so, when I made the commitment to myself to listen to my body and to follow what my soul was trying to encourage me to do, I had to stop doing those things. I had to stop doing things for other people. I had to do things for myself. And that drove me into a deeper level of loneliness, which was even more uncomfortable. But from there, I was able to find something that felt true, something that felt real, I was able to find the two people on a university campus of 6,000 that actually understood who I was and, and could promote me in a way that made me feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. And so like, I fell into the depths of isolation and loneliness. And from there, I found a very small group of people. The, the, the group has expanded now, but I found a small group of people who have helped shepherd me to, to where I am now. So... I think I kind of went around your question a little bit and let me know if there's something to clarify, but, but basically it, it's a matter of, I, I chose unhealthy patterns to cope um, up until the point where I realized I can't do this anymore. And I, and I made a drastic change and that change drove me into deeper discomfort. But now I, I'm in a space of excitement and joy that I could have never imagined before. It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that turning point, if you will, that pivot was the use of resilience, the experience of it, the determination to find it. Why the pivot? I mean, you could have continued to spiral downward and find yourself, you know, ruined by addiction, but why pivot? There's kind of two parts to this. So the pivot happened for me in college, um, probably my second year in college. I started to do more martial arts competitions. And um, I was I was at advanced level, but I was trying to get to like the higher level of, of, of advanced. And so I was training really, really hard. And there was like a couple of weeks in my training leading up to this major tournament um, that happens, uh, a bunch of schools around the United States gather for this one major Chinese martial arts tournament. And as I was training for the tournament, I couldn't perform the moves that I, that, that I needed to. And they're, they're not difficult moves. They're, they're simple moves, but I couldn't flow in between the movements very well. I was stuck. Um, my body wasn't, wasn't responding the the energy that was being cultivated because martial arts is about the way we cultivate and utilize our own energy. So I couldn't cultivate enough energy. I just felt weak and I felt powerless. And I sat with myself in meditation and I'm like, why can I not do this? Like this, the series is simple, but I, but I can't do it. 
And the answer that came to me is because I'm stuck in this people pleasing attitude. I'm stuck with, with my, with my sex addiction to the point where it's causing me to be so far removed from myself that I physically cannot perform this very simple move that I've been able to do for like 10 years at that particular point. Um, and that was devastating for me to, to realize I can't do this. And I was like, well, something needs to change. Um, and so that's when I, that's when I made that commitment to myself. I, I got deeper into the, not deeper into the martial arts practices, but I got deeper into my other spiritual practices. And I supplemented that into the martial arts practices. I felt my own life force like grow rapidly, like a, like a bonfire almost. And then I was able to perform beautifully. Um, I was able to, winning isn't that important, but but I, I did win that, that particular tournament in, in my section and nobody thought that I could. And the reason I was able to was because I realized like I, I was weak in my own life force. Mm-hmm. And I took the initiative to bring back up my life force. And from then on, the way that I've operated in the world is extremely different. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's all because of martial arts that I had this sort of like this come to Jesus moment, as, as people usually call it. Like I, I, I needed to change and I needed to do something. Mm-hmm. And also in that period, I just noticed how I was treating the people around me. I was being very manipulative and distant and um, crass and rude. Um, so I was like, this needs to change. And mm-hmm. it did. It did. It was, it was, again, an uncomfortable moment, very uncomfortable, but necessary. As I mentioned before, the theme for this Pride series is I Am Resilient because we want to remind all of you that trauma is strong and effective, but so are we. During this Pride season, I hope, and I mean sincerely hope, that you take time to recognize your power, your natural talents, your genuine nature, and your ability to create the safety you need. I hope you take care of yourself from the inside out as you celebrate who you are. Happy Pride. Now, let's get back to the show. You know, when I think of resilience, it's, um, there's many different versions of the definition out there. The, the resistance, or, yeah, the resistance to being affected, the ability to adapt. I think a lot of us think of like, it may be a kitschy metaphor, but I don't think it is, but the phoenix you know, rising from its own ashes. And it, in some way, it almost seems like that's where you found yourself. Kind of, how do I turn this circumstance around and how do I create good out of what I have? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the Phoenix because I, I resonate with that um, a lot. My very first martial arts school, um, I was part of... I was part of a small group of like elite performers and we were called the, the, the Phoenixes. And, and so that's, that image is always stuck in, in my mind of like, you know, when things are, are really hard, there is a period of rebirth that comes after you allow that full death to happen. And that's one of the issues that I have with, with, with people sometimes is that people don't allow that full death to happen. They kind of like, they kind of go through the more shallow level of that particular process, but you really need to feel into the depths of whatever it is that you're experiencing in order to be able to rise into that particular Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And I think once we have the skill set of resilience, 
it's what allows us to to die in that particular sense and then uh, and then gives us the capacity for the, that kind of rebirth right. um so I, I think the phoenix is is a it's it is overused but i think it's really important it's an important metaphor for resilience totally i like how you're speaking of it in terms of like rebirth one of my all-time favorite quotes it's very very short but it's death before life mm. and it's almost i use that quote as almost like an anchor when i feel <clears throat> like i'm losing something i have lost something um someone gives me criticism and positive feedback when i recognize a pattern that I need to change. That phrase really kind of tethers me down into kind of a deeper part of my core where I've made peace with the dying that needs to happen because I know that death always comes before life, this rejuvenation, the life force, whatever we might call it. And I really do resonate with you here. I think I, I heard of this from my mentor once. He he was talking to me about death before life. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, like the death part and then the life. And <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really spend enough time being curious around the death part. You alluded to it, you know, like at first this resilience was like more discomfort because I don't think we know how to, in, a, in our culture, and I'm being pejorative here, but I don't think we know how to die. I think we know how to medicate. I think we know how to avoid, distract. When you slipped into that level of more discomfort, if we were gonna help coach people from the darkness to the deeper depths of the darkness so that they could pop up, what might they experience in that dark belly? Mm. The biggest thing for me is irrationality and moodiness. I, I, I find that, you know, when I'm going through something and it's hard, I'm, I'm there in that particular space. And then when I allow myself to feel into that, dif that difficulty, my actions don't quite make sense. I get very irrational. I get super, super moody. And usually what, what I would have done in the past is I would have just, as you said, like medicated myself and be like, okay, I'm, I'm moody. I need to enlighten myself. And this is the issue I have with this enlightenment idea. It's like, it's all about like being in the light and the positive and moving upward in that particular sense. Um, so like, like when I'm in this like really irrational moody state, usually I'd say, well, okay, let me go meditate and make myself feel better. And now I'm like, hmm. I might meditate, but it's not for the purpose of feeling better. It's for the purpose of fully feeling this moodiness. Mm -hmm. And so um, this actually happened a couple of weeks ago. I, I was kind of going down into like, like the, the, the darkness of, of my own psyche. And I started to feel moody and I'm like, okay, let me go in, into meditation. And I noticed like five or six different emotions like kind of coming up. And the more I was in meditation, the more emotions started to come up. And I'm like, oh God, this is overwhelming. This is a lot. Um, however, I've trained in a very specific way. I, I train my body and, and my psyche and, and, and my spirit in a way that I can handle this overwhelm of, of, of emotion. Mm -hmm. So I allowed it to come through me. And then after I finished the meditation, I was in a really, really bad mood. I had to cancel everything and I had to just be alone to kind of like sit with everything. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so again, like you move into this, this state of being irrational and moody, um, it gets really uncomfortable and it gets really heavy. And then something clicks, you know, and then like, for me, it's usually like I, I go to sleep and the next day I wake up and I feel this tremendous lightness because I allowed myself to sit with this heaviness and it digested through my psyche in whatever way it needed to. And now I'm feeling this sort of lightness that's, that's coming over me, which is the beginning of the, of the rebirth. It's the, it's the, the ray of light that's shining that eventually opens up to a bigger ray of light and you realize it's the sun, it's the sunrise and it's noon and sunset. So, yeah. When we watch, um, I first learned about this by doing my own trauma therapy, where um, I was working with a somatic experiencing therapist and she had a massage table in her office where she did these certain techniques to help the body move trauma through. And it was mm -hmm. fascinating. She would always describe kind of this wave where we would dip down and then pop up. And we talked about this wave and what the body was doing. It was gonna go into fight, flight, or freeze. It was gonna push all of this pain and trauma through. The part of the brain where a physical pain would register would start to fire because emotional pain makes that same region of the brain activate. Mm -hmm. And then eventually my body would push enough and I would um, kind of dive deep enough and then parasympathetic, cool, calm, and collected would take over. And then I feel this peace and this resolve. And I was like, okay, I guess we'll try. So I lay down on the massage table and bawled my eyes out, <laughs> groaning, like deep, painful groaning. And then I found like my breath started to slow and the, the sorrow dissipated and this wave of joy and peace came over. Mm -hmm. And it was so fascinating to watch my body heal itself. Mm -hmm. And I wanna talk about this and I, I'm so grateful to have you share your wisdom with us because it feels to me like a lot of affirmation and a lot of safety and a lot of comfort to to let those parts of us die the unwanted patterns the people pleasing whatever it may be the narratives the shame um because i do think that if we let it the suffering is very very temporary uh -huh. but if we avoid and medicate the suffering is somewhat maybe less painful but continuous Still mm -hmm. painful, just a little bit less, and it never goes away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I'll add to that, because I think it's always important, like whenever talking about death and suffering, that this conversation is centered around folks who have a certain stability already within their their mental health. So this kind of death that we're talking about is for folks who have that, that foundation already within their own mental health. Letting old patterns die is something I found to be very, very important for myself. Um, I used to believe that if I let these old beliefs die, then I don't know who I'm going to be because I've identified with these beliefs and this is how I'm known in the world. And if I, if I no longer believe that I am worthless, then, you know, like I, I don't have that edge to me anymore. I'm no longer interesting. Um, like who am I? Like, like, why do people come to me anymore? And so I had to like get rid of that, that way of thinking of like, okay, if I'm letting this part of myself die, I'm actually becoming something new. I don't have to identify with that old version of myself, although it's comfortable to do that. Um, 
I don't have to identify with that. And there's so much fear that that comes up of like, okay, you're, you're shedding this aspect of your identity that you've had for 15, 20 plus years. Are you sure you're ready for that? You don't know who you're going to be. You don't know how people are going to react to this, this new version of, of yourself. And so I, I had this, this conversation with myself over and over and over. And I had to realize that in order to let, you have to let something go in order to let something in. Right. And so I had the strong desire to let a new way of being in a new way of speaking, a new way of walking, a new way of eating and talking, you know, there's this new version of me that I, that I was imagining and seeing that was like visiting me in my dreams. And in order for me to become that person, to kind of court that person, I had to let go of all of this baggage that was holding me back from being able to become that person. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's, it's a scary process and it's not easy, but if we allow ourselves to be resilient and continue on that path of becoming the person that we, that we want to be, the person that we know ourselves to be, then it's, it's, it's a journey and it's, it's a journey that's worth it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, it's so important that people realize that um, because there is so much fear of you know, letting go and dying of your, of your younger past self. When our trauma, when our pain, when our patterns, they're designed to medicate something, the fear of letting go of the medicine. Mm-hmm. so scary because then we say, well, who am I if I'm just chronically in pain? Because I, I fully agree with you. I don't know if a lot of people know that we can heal from the pain. It's not up to consciousness in that moment because we're like, oh, hell no, just survive. Pop another mm-hmm. pill in a sense, you know? By embracing this process of letting the phoenix crumble, I often tell my clients it's a kind of another mantra that helps, but um, watch the crumbling, just watch it crumble. And that's not a very comfortable place to sit. Um, How have you benefited from that? How has resilience served you? Why all of, why push through all of that pain and toil so much? I'm having this experience right now as a human being and I don't know if I'm going to return as a human being again. I might be reincarnated as, as a, as a cow. I might not even be reincarnated. I, I, I don't know, but I have this body right now. I am a human right now in this moment. So why am I not living the life that I'm capable of living? Why am I not doing the things that I want to do? Why am I not talking to the people like you that that I want to talk to and talk about these things that I want to talk about? And when I started to ask myself those questions, I'm just like, well, I'm just wasting my life. I'm, in a sense, I'm losing my destiny. And and I I define destiny as as the the pathway of, of our own desires. So I don't want to lose my destiny. I, I don't want to waste my limited time here on the earth. Now, now, that doesn't mean I need to go do a whole laundry list of things. It actually means that I need to spend six hours a day just sitting outside staring at a tree because that's how I feel the most joy and comfort and, and, and happiness. Um, so I was like, you know, I, I have this life that I know that I'm meant to live. So I, I, I want to live it. And, you know, the, for me, the, the desire to live life fully is what encourages me to be more resilient. Mm-hmm. So when a challenge comes, I'm like, okay, this is a challenge. 
And this challenge, I'm going to grow from this challenge in some way. I don't have to know what the way is, but I'm going to grow from this challenge eventually to become this person that, that I see myself to be. And that particular sort of way of being started to happen when I started to have dreams of my future self. And I, and I would talk talk with them and they would share certain things with me and I would be enamored by them. I'm literally in awe and I'm like, wow, they're amazing. What can I do to become a little bit more like them? Mm -hmm. um, and, and now I ask myself this question almost, almost every morning of like, what can I do to become more familiar to my own soul? And, and I take specific actions according to that. And I realize that everything that's happening in the outer world is helping me to become more aligned with my soul. With, with my own life force. And so that's what keeps me being resilient. There's this belief that I have that I'm always in this pursuit of becoming more of myself. The more that I get in touch with my desires, I realize that my desires are all pointing me toward this direction. The different kinds of desires that are all pointing me in, in, toward the same path. And it's really exciting for me to begin to, to walk it. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'd say I'm still in the midst of the creation of it. And right now, I'm really focused on this idea of ritual and what it means to hold ritual. Why do people have rituals? And my, my research right now is all about martial arts as a, as a ritual practice, which is a brand new understanding of martial arts itself that I'm excited to usher out into the world and then gather other martial artists to do these like public rituals that are also act activists, mm -hmm. modes, of, modes of activism in a way. Um, so that's what my soul is turning toward. And I don't know the specific steps it's going to get there, but I tune in with my desire daily. And I know that it's guiding me toward that. Sounds like what you're crafting or building as a, I don't want to use the word authenticity. It feels like a genuineness. Mm. Like when I think of genuine, I, to articulate a bit, a little bit more, it means like from the essence it is pure. It is original. It is. I, I've always loved that word, genuine. And it's funny, quick story. When I was younger and I had my speech impediment, I would get genuine and genuine, the, the singer mixed up. So I would like, in a sentence, I, I get them mixed up very often. And I have this very strong memory of that. And so the word genuine is very um, precious to me because of that. Um, so thank you. Mm -hmm. I. I didn't think about using that word often, but I, I think it's going to be something that I that I focus on because for me, genuineness is about the return to the essence and the return of what feels like what is mm -hmm. versus I think authenticity is like um, a little bit pitched toward the external world a little bit, whereas genuineness is more internal. Mm -hmm. um, at least that's what's coming up initially as we have this conversation. So thank you mm -hmm. for that. I want to explore that further. Mm -hmm. For a large part of my life, I felt like I needed to be so seeped in my own trauma and difficulty and challenges. And that was how I identified myself. Mm -hmm. And anything that felt joyous or exciting, I would turn away from it because I'm like, well, this is taking me away from these it's taking me away from challenges. And I understand challenges to bring about depth and mastery and, and, and all of these great things. But there is this other element to life about experiencing and being in joy and pleasure. And a, a lot of my life, I was afraid of that because, I mean, 
I was told as like a, as a black person, as a queer person, that the things that I find most joyous or pleasurable are wrong, or I'm not supposed to find these things in, enjoyable. So I would just tell myself to follow the joy and allow myself to dress up as Sailor Venus and go to Comic Con or go to this anime convention and not be afraid of that. Um, not try to fit in um, and by fitting in, being stuck into this paradigm that's going to constantly continue to traumatize and harm and pull me away from myself, but actually turn more deeply inward into the, what the voices are trying to communicate to me that, that, that I want to do. Turn toward joy, recognize the challenges, but realize that joy is maybe a goal versus, you know, seeing it as, as another challenge to try to overcome, if that makes sense. I do think about all of the Gen Zers who might be listening, and I'm so excited to be able to inspire them to do mm. what I would have loved to have done, to mm. embrace my joy, to have come out earlier, to have fallen in love with myself at an earlier age, I'm so thankful for the life and the challenges that I've had because dying in those ways has produced a life I'm, I'm so thankful for, but I'm excited for them to experience that at an earlier age and maybe their deaths won't be so painful. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's very true. I, I have, I have the same hope. And at the same time, I look back at like myself and folks that are older than me who have gone through deaths and resurrections and I can see the magnitude of gratitude and excitement for life that we've experienced because of these deeply uncomfortable deaths is almost unmatched. Um, and so that's one thing I have to remind myself is like my deaths have been horrible. And at the same time, I'm deeply grateful for them because I, I have this new way of tasting the air or a new way of feeling my skin or, or someone else's skin because of it. And I, I don't know where I would have been without it, but looking past the death, like lo looking back at it, I am just very happy as to who I've become now. And now that I'm older and I have this capacity to like make something happen immediately, it feels restorative. And, and, to a whole nother degree because I can quickly create this new reality that I want for myself. Whereas if I were younger, I wouldn't be able to create that reality so quickly. It would take a little bit more effort there. So I guess I'm, I'm grateful for my age um, for that regard. But if things happen younger, I, I don't know what my life would have been like, but I'm sure it would have also been exciting and amazing as it is now. I spent many years, more years than I am comfortable admitting to, medicating trauma. Developmental trauma, the trauma of conversion therapy, and even sexual assault trauma. I buried trauma sting with alcohol hookups and busyness. I know what it feels like to numb out trauma just to feel normal and in control. In fact, I was completely unaware before I became a therapist that I suffered from trauma and that something could be done. It wasn't until halfway through graduate school that I actually realized the daily panic wasn't normal and that it was called anxiety. I didn't even learn that my anxiety was the symptom of the trauma locked in my body 
until I found myself on a therapist's couch several years later. As many of you know, I consider it my life's work to bring mental health resources to the queer community because I believe in us and I want nothing more for all of us than to find wholeness. That's why I'm often frustrated in the ways in which the cultural narrative around trauma has surfaced. I wished we talked about both trauma and resilience as a set. Trauma is a powerful force indeed, and as I said, so are we. It might not be trauma that stands in your way, but whatever it is, I hope that this pride you take time to not only celebrate your genuine self, but also your power to heal and your ability to stand firm. What does it mean to be queer? I like to start with a medical basis. We are literally born queer. For more information on that, see the episode with Dr. Joni Jack. And from the inside out, we possess the ability to introduce a beautiful diversity to the world. Our love, our gender, our expressions, and our truth is literally a force that allows every other person on the planet to embrace and express their truth as well. By standing firm in our genuine natures, we give the world the ability to finally dismantle hate and embrace the full spectrum of who we are as a race. I don't want to sound naive or hyperbolic, but I do want to highlight that now is the time to lean into our resilience, whether it's in academia, in your office, in your place of worship, or in the face of trauma, or in this horrible political climate. We can claim our territory. The part that does take time, effort, and a lot of support is learning how to let the old parts, the old patterns, the old dysfunctional roles, die. One of my professors used to say that when we take something out of our lives, we need to fill that hole with something new. Oftentimes, we might be afraid of our resilience because we might not have any idea of who we will be or what we will do once we initiate change. But as Sifu said today, you have to let something go to let something in. And that process shouldn't be without reflection, it shouldn't be done overnight, and it shouldn't be done without caution and wisdom. I still have work to do. In the quiet moments when the busyness has come to an end and people retreat to their own corners, I find myself still addressing old memories, trying to tie up old frayed ends and perfecting new habits. And that is how life flows. I am sure that we will always be striving towards more health. And as I continue on my own journey, I am proud of the changes I've made and the benefits they have brought my way. Resilience and the courage to enact it will change your life too, I promise. During Pride, I hope that you take time to find your resilience and where it is most necessary today. Until next time. Queer Relationships is a podcast sponsored by I Am Clinic, a counseling practice devoted to the LGBTQ plus community with in-person and virtual counseling options available. I Am Clinic, create the love lives and relationships you crave. Find us online on Instagram at LGBTQ underscore therapy and Facebook at I Am Clinic. That's I-A-M Clinic.